Well, I, I don't think I need to survey you to find out if you identified with that video. I think most of us would look at that and just go, that looks an awful lot like my life. We head off to work and we bear the weight and burdens of things that are going on at home or work is so stressful and we bring that home and we treat our loved ones with contempt because we're bearing this weight and it affects every aspect of our lives. We carry around health issues. We wonder how we're going to pay the bills. We have deep concerns for loved ones who are struggling for all sorts of reasons. We worry over global events and the future, our own future and that of our kids and our grandkids. We carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. And into this very real life scenario for us, Jesus speaks. Matthew 11, he said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. All who are carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you've come in today carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders... Hearing the words of Jesus, why wouldn't you want that? I have to imagine every single one of us would want exactly what Jesus is offering. Rest for our souls to be done with doing it our own way and to get myself aligned with the Lord and to do it His way and find rest for my soul. Over the next four weekends, we thought we'd go after this. We're going to look at four burdens, the weight that's on our shoulders Four burdens that many of us carry around. These are the four that we picked. Failure. Now some of us just, with some setback in our lives, just believe we're failures and that paralyzes us and we carry that failure around with us. Or to think about brokenness, how decisions we made in the past that have left scar tissue in our life and, and, and how that affects every decision and every relationship we have today. We're going to talk about insecurity and how that masks itself in our lives. And today we're going to talk about doubt. Each one of these is going to be a study on the life of a New Testament character. We're going to talk about Peter. We're going to talk about Mary Magdalene. We're going to look at the life of Paul. And because we're talking about doubt today, we're going to talk about... Come on, you can do way better than that, right? Because we're talking about doubt today, we're going to talk about... There it is. That's good. It just works better when you answer the first time. So... What we know about Thomas, let's, let's go right into this, what we know about Thomas comes to us from the Gospel of John. Now he's mentioned in the other Gospels, he's mentioned in the book of Acts, but in those situations, he's only part of a list. It's in John's Gospel that we actually have three little scenarios, little conversations that Thomas is involved in where we get some insight into his life. And in these three passages, of course, we understand we've come to know him as Doubting Thomas. For good reason. He provides really the best case study for someone who is dealing with their doubts, but who comes to greater faith in Christ and, and therefore gets the burden off their shoulders, gets the weight of those doubts out of their lives. And any doubts that you have about what you believe, 
Any doubts you have about Jesus, any doubts you have about the Word of God, any doubts you have about how you ought to be living the Christian life can be quieted in the same way that they were quieted for Thomas. So that's what we're going to go after today. Uh, Let's bow our heads and pray and commit our time to the Lord, and then we'll start working through these various passages. Uh, Father, it's a privilege uh, for us to be here, and it's amazing to think about how much you love us, how much you care for us, and how much you want the very best for us. And Father, we would pray the same way that man did in the gospel. Help our unbelief. We believe, but help our unbelief. Help us in our doubts. Help us with our struggles to trust you more, to know you more. God, use this time in your word to teach us in, in, into the ignorances that we still have. To encourage us in those areas of our lives where we're discouraged right now. And Father, to challenge us in our rebellions. Do all of this, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen? All right, let's... Here's the thing, uh, any doubts I have about Jesus in the Christian life will be quieted, will be quieted by, first of all, clear, not muddied thinking. Clear, not muddied thinking. Now it is quite natural, hear this, it's quite natural to have doubts about what you believe. I don't know if that's surprising for you to hear me say that. We're not here to just kind of pound the pulpit and say this is what you ought to believe and all of us put on this this uh, facade of confidence and faith it's quite natural to have doubts about what you believe no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus in fact we say that we're people of faith and faith by definition our definition of this is about following someone we can't see Jesus It's believing that he did some things that we were not witnesses to. We didn't see his birth in Bethlehem. We didn't hear his teaching in Jerusalem or Galilee. We didn't witness any of the miracles. We We didn't see him crucified. We weren't witnesses to the resurrection. We did not see him lifted up into the clouds at the ascension. We saw none of that. We believe it by faith. And, and by faith, we're also waiting for some things to happen that obviously haven't happened yet. We're waiting for His return. We're waiting for the promise of heaven and eternity with Him forever. And so the whole thing that we've built this on is things we can't see. And so you can understand when that's it, how sometimes we could have doubts about all of it how it can be a challenge for us. So how do we overcome that? How do we we increase in our faith? Really, it comes down to what we're talking about, clear thinking. Clarity in our thinking will quiet any doubts that we have about all of these things. So our first passage is John 11. Are you already there? John 11? If not, turn there. That's where we're going to be to start. We're going to be in John 11, John 14, and John 20. So in John 11, I'm not going to read the whole passage for you right now, and you could read that later, but a little recap on kind of what's happening here. Thomas and the other disciples are faced in this situation with a make-or-break proposition that's put in front of them. So they're up kind of in Galilee. That's where they did most of the ministry, where Jesus did most of his teaching. And um, 
Jesus gets word while they're doing ministry that his friend Lazarus is sick. Now, for his own reasons and for some very clear purposes that relate to the glory of God, Jesus decides to delay going to see his friend Lazarus for a couple of days. And in the meantime, while he does that, the disciples are fine with that, by the way. Uh, when he does that, what happens? In the meantime, Lazarus, he dies. He dies. And Jesus knows this. Now, he's going to make a whole point about all of that. And that's not really the point of what we're talking about here. But after Lazarus dies and Jesus knows he's died, then Jesus says, let's go to Bethany. Let's go, let's go to the home of Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. Let's go there. Now, this creates a whole big discussion amongst the disciples about the wisdom of going to Bethany because Bethany is crazy close to the capital of Jerusalem. This is going to be a, a very risky move. If you stay up in Galilee and you teach about the kingdom of God and you challenge the religious leaders who are down in Jerusalem, you know, you're kind of away from the power center, so it's not a big deal. But if you go to Bethany, which is essentially a suburb of Jerusalem, if you go there now, you're going right into the heart, right to the front door of the religious leaders who aren't especially fond of you. Now, the disciples know this, in fact, because they discuss it out. Now, check this out, verse 7. After this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Really? You, you want to go right into the heart of it? You want to get right there into this high-risk situation? Now, Thomas, this is where he starts to figure in to all of this. The thing about Thomas is we, we call him Doubting Thomas, but he's far less of a doubter and far more of what we would call a critical thinker. Okay, he's good. He's got very good critical processing skills. I don't know if you know a person like this in your life, or maybe you're this kind of person. You know, you, this is the person who analyzes, they think about, they consider it carefully, they study it, they take their time about the whole thing. This is the person who cuts through all the data, and by the way, they love the data. Give me all the data I can get. Give me all the information I can get. And they cut through all of that, and they can chart a course forward, and, and they can find a solution to a problem. That's a critical thinker. You got someone like that in your life? Are you that person? I call that person Dan, okay? That's Pastor Dan, okay? He is that guy for us on our staff. He's the critical processing thinker guy. And so here's Thomas. He, he'd assess this whole situation. And I imagine that that, that conversation is happening in verse 8. I imagine that that's Thomas who's at the root of it, who's thinking through this whole thing, who's going. It's just too risky to go to Bethany. Why would we ever do that? And so he expressed his concerns. He thought that through entirely. And then you'll see in the text, he throws his lot completely in with Jesus. And he inspires his fellow disciples to do the same because they all go. And his statement shows, this is what's interesting, it shows tremendous clarity and it shows zero doubt on his part. Take a look at verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us all go that we might die with him. He gets it. He's analyzed the whole situation and he gets it 100%. And this is huge. He knows that his life, the life of the disciples, and the life of Jesus are all on the line here. And he's essentially saying, I'm willing to die 
for this mission. Now, the call is no different for us today. It doesn't seem so because it seems a lot safer to be a Christ follower today, but the threats for us not as grave are still there. Thomas had the weight of the world on his shoulders and in the midst of it was willing to say, yes, I'm willing to go. I've pledged to follow Jesus and I'm going to do that. So whatever doubts that he had, they were quieted by expressing his concern, having analyzed the data, talking it out, and then accepting the result with resolve. And that's the key. Get the clarity you need. In other words, rather than your doubts driving you away from faith, your doubts are something that drive you more towards your faith. Use your doubts to fuel your faith, not to turn from it. Doubts end up burdening us when they drive us away from greater confidence in Christ. And so how you handle your, your doubts is what's critical here. The challenge to do that, though, becomes so overwhelming because if we're talking about getting greater clarity by adding to the information and how can I know and where do I go, we live in this world today that is oversaturated with information. In fact, we live in what is called the information age. There's so much of information available to us. It's coming to us um, at a thousand miles an hour all day long, every minute of the day. The 24-hour news cycle is always in front of us and we can't even have an idle moment that we're not picking up our cell phones and looking at Twitter or looking at social media or reading something. We don't even know how to stop and be quiet anymore. And we're our own worst enemy when it comes to just flooding our minds with information. Now, information seems important, but when everything is important, nothing is important. So we might then just slip back and just go, you know what, I want clarity, but there's so much information, I just can't get clarity. How can I know what to look at and what to trust? And I would just suggest, this isn't going to be a surprise to you at all, that we would cut through it all and get to the source of truth. Don't you think that's the best idea? That everything else would get filtered through this and what God has said to us? Too many doubt God, but don't spend time in His Word or around His people and around His teachers to get the clarity we need. This Word speaks of our hope. It delivers to us a promise. Something that Hebrews 6.19 says is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. That's what we need. We need God to teach us, to tell us, to bring clarity to us. We need to be willing to get under the teaching of His Word, to read it, to study it, to grasp these truths. I really like um, an author that I've just been getting into in the last little while. His name is Timothy Keller. In 1989, he and his wife moved to uh, that great city of New York, and they wanted to plant a church. People told him he was foolish for doing this. To get into an area where there were urban professionals who were skeptics and doubters of the highest degree to plant a church right in the midst of them to meet them right where they are and challenge their assumptions about what they believe he did that and he was so compelling he is so compelling of a teacher and so learned and wise 
that he was of draw and God used him and people started coming to the church and they began asking him the most difficult questions you can ask about the Christian life, about the word of God, about God himself, about Jesus. And Keller was able to answer those questions. In fact, a book I finished reading this year, The Reason for God, is one of those, uh, is his one book where he deals with all of those really critical questions that he faced, the hardest ones. And he takes his readers through the Word of God to show that even the hardest questions are answered by the Word of God. Keller, in fact, says this, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts which should only be discarded after long reflection. The doubts fueling faith, moving us along as we get into God's word and hear what he says about a, a matter. We can have a faith that is rigorous, that can withstand any doubt and move us to a stronger faith. What is required is clear, not muddied thinking, and that clarity comes from the word of God. Well, that... Uh, leads us well into this second thing. My doubts are also quieted by genuine, not skeptical inquiry. Genuine inquiry. Now, I'm using the word skeptical here in the more negative sense. It is okay to be a skeptic or a doubter if you're moving in a certain direction, but I'm using the word here in this line more in the negative sense of that person who is such a skeptic that skepticism for them has become a god. That's what they worship. That's their value system. And, and so they're a skeptic and they're never going to believe they're entrenched in it. That's the way I'm using uh, the word here. And, and, and so we're talking about this. Uh, my doubt is going to be quieted by genuine, not skeptical inquiry. In other words, very simply, ask questions. If you have doubts, if you are skeptical, ask questions. Now, I get in talking about all of this that there are two basic starting points or preconceived ideas that we can have that inform all the other decisions we make and our whole approach to life. What is our starting point? Well, first of all, let's talk about the starting point of the vast majority of people that live in this world today. The starting point for most, let's talk about universities who hold doubt and skepticism as the highest virtue. In fact, there are some pseudo-Christian teachers, pastors today who are tripping into that, the way the world believes in holding skepticism and doubt so high that some pastors are even teaching that you must be a doubter. You must question everything. Listen, I believe doubt can move us toward faith, but I'm not going to elevate it so high that it becomes a God all on its own. That's not the highest virtue. And I am trying to achieve and move us toward faith. And so the starting point for most universities, as I said, doubt and skepticism, the highest virtue. Dallas Willard said this, we live in a culture that has, for centuries now, cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. 
Okay, that's what universities and colleges believe. He goes on to say, you can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. Well, we reject that, but professors labor to cause their students to question everything. The question isn't the problem, but they, they teach them to question everything so as to reject it. Academia's aim is to disrupt and challenge, and few would believe in objective truth of any kind, but would believe instead, and this isn't new, that truth is relative. In other words, truth comes from what I perceive, and so it's true for me because I perceived it, or I experienced it, and therefore it's true for me because I experienced it, and then based on my perceptions and based on my experiences, I create a truth and a belief system that for me is true. That's relativism. Or there are some who go even further than that, and most of these would be under the category of postmoderns who believe that truth, if it can be known, okay, truth, if it exists, I'm sorry, truth, if it exists, cannot be known. And so they question the existence of it, but they're willing to say maybe it exists, but there's no possible way we could ever get there or know what it is. Most of the people in your life most of the people in your family who are unbelievers, most of the people you work with and live around in this city, that's their starting point. Our starting point, considerably different than that. The exact opposite, in fact. We believe that truth can be known, that it is objective, and it's not based on our perceptions or our experience at all. It's based on the unchangeable God who gave us the truth. And so it is objective. God has given us a sure word. Isaiah 40 of verse 8 says this, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word, of the, God, the word of God lasts forever or will stand forever. Romans 1.19 says that what can be known about God is plain to us because we can see Him in the things that He's made. In other words, the Creator has left His fingerprints all over the creation. And so whether it's the written word of God or whether it's our perception of the world around us, all of it points to an objective truth that's rooted in the unchangeable God. And so we need to come to him with our questions. Genuine inquiry. All right, John chapter 14. That's the next passage. Are you there already? Let's turn over there. John 14. John 14, 1 uh, to six now, uh, Thomas again comes to the forefront of the discussion. And um, what's happening in John 13 through 17, something called the Upper Room Discourse. And so this is Jesus with his closest followers just before he's betrayed, arrested. The next day he would be crucified. And so he's spending this last few moments with them. He washes their feet in John 13. And then at the end of that, after doing this wonderful act of mercy and servanthood toward them, he then says this to Peter. Peter's the leader. Peter's been the boldest. He's had some extra privileges. He's part of the inner three around Jesus. And he says to Peter, listen, before all of this is done, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to tell people three times that you don't even know who I am. Now, for sure, that rattles Peter. We would agree, right? Peter is rattled by this and actually denies that it's even going to happen. But it rattles all the rest of the disciples too because Peter's the leader. If Peter could deny him, 
what's going to happen to me? Now, Thomas is among them. He's hearing this whole interaction. But then in John 14, right at the very start, Jesus gets really tender with them, and he says to them, understanding how upset they are by this, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. And then he goes into this amazing description that we have, and this is why it's read at funerals so often, this description of heaven. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, will I not come and bring you to myself? That where I am, you might be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now that last line, that's that's the one that stirs up Thomas because he's the critical processing guy. He's listening to everything Jesus is saying. He's taking it all in. And Jesus says to him, after this little description about heaven, Jesus, said, Jesus says to him, you know the way. And Thomas goes, I'm the smartest guy in the room and I do not know the way. <laughs> he doesn't know the way. He hasn't figured it out. And so verse 16, notice. He says, um, where are we at? Verse 6, verse uh, you know the way, verse 4, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? No idea. I'm so grateful for this question, by the way. You know why? Because it produces the answer that we have in John 14, 6, which is one of the most quoted verses in all the New Testament, right? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's, that's awesome. What a great answer, and it tells us about Jesus being the only path to come to the Father. And then Jesus says to him, if you had known me, if you get to know Jesus, you would have known my father also. He's saying, I'm God. Then the wow moment. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, Thomas, again, is analyzing all of this, and it's rattling the foundations of what they believed because this is what the disciples thought. This is what the people of Israel thought at the time when their Messiah was coming, that he was going to set up a political, physical kingdom in their midst. In other words, he was going to come. He was going to throw the Romans out. He was going to reestablish Israel's borders. They were going to become the theocracy that God intended them to be. They were no longer going to be under any foreign domination. They were finally going to rule as God's people in their own land. That's what they have in mind. And it's becoming very clear that uh, that is not what Jesus has in mind. That instead of a physical kingdom, this is actually a metaphysical one. This is a spiritual kingdom that he's talking about. And Thomas is starting to do the math on all of this. So he's still confused. And he asks the question, How can we know the way? He asked the question. That's the whole point of this. That doubts are going to be moved along toward faith when we ask the question, and who did he ask it of? He asked it of Jesus. In other words, have your questions. Start with your doubts, have your questions, and take your questions to Jesus, just as Thomas did. 
And if you have doubts, but you're not willing to do any of the work to alleviate those doubts, then you cannot expect that your faith will increase or that your doubts will be quieted and you'll continue to carry around the weight of those doubts with you. Thomas took his question to Jesus, and you must do the same no matter what the root of your doubts must be. And I wouldn't assume that everyone's doubts are the same, because they're not. The root of where those doubts come from is different for each of us. And, and a lot of it depends on the circumstances of our life, where we're at in our life, what's going on in our lives. Let me give you six of these, six roots of doubt. The first one is taking up your cross. This is what we're told to do as the followers of Jesus Christ. We have to take up our own cross and follow him. In other words, as Jesus sacrificed his life, I'm to sacrifice my life. And so Christianity is not this easy believism type of thing where my path is automatically smooth the minute I follow Jesus. In fact, there are high demands placed on those who are followers of Christ. I have to take up my cross. It's about self-denial. It's about serving others. It's about preferring others before myself. It's about crazy thought now, crazy. Love your enemies. It's about sacrificial generous giving out of my abundance. Taking up your cross. We begin to ask the question when it's put to us, have you taken up your cross? And we start to doubt, is it really worth it? Living my life in this way and all the self-denial and all of the others first stuff, is it really worth it? Doubt creeps in. Or secondly, how about facing trials of all kinds? The testing of our faith, suffering loss, the loss of loved ones, pain, persecution, rejection, hardship, setbacks. Why is this happening to me, Lord? Why am I going through this? Why have I been afflicted in this way? Don't you love me? We doubt his love. And we doubt that he has our best interests at heart. You seeing it? Where the doubt comes from? How about a third one? The plight of widows and orphans. A stand-in for injustice in the world. All injustice. We think about natural catastrophes that, that kill hundreds, thousands. We think of of warfare and of poverty, of the plight of the marginalized and the vulnerable all over the world. And you see it on the news and you hear about it and you know the suffering and you think, God, is your plan working at all? We doubt His sovereignty. We doubt His Lordship. We question His plan. Or how about the issue of science in the Bible, this creates all kinds of doubt. Believing in the creation. Believing that God is the creator. 
And, and we, we send our children off to public schools and even Catholic schools, and we send them off to colleges and universities where they are told that this book is incompatible with science and that we, if we believe in this book, are anti-science. It's not true. 100% truly proven empirical science is 100% compatible with this book. Our theology and our science are not in conflict at all. Creator has made it so. But there can be doubt there. Five, the condemnation of unbelievers. We have this fairness thing inside of us, and we think God is being unfair by judging those who have rejected Him. Even, even pastors now are shying away from ever mentioning hell, and many of them are rejecting even the doctrine of eternal torment. And we think in our own minds, how could God allow this? How could a loving God condemn someone to a Christless eternity? You tracking with me on these? How about this last one? Be holy as I am holy. The ethical demands of being a Christ follower, the moral implications of the Bible that inform marriage and divorce and sexuality and matters of life like abortion and euthanasia and so many other issues. And all of a sudden... I've got to live in a certain way. The standard of holiness to which I am called is the standard of God's holiness. And we live in a world that's chirping in our ears. That's ridiculous. It's so old-fashioned. No one lives like that anymore. Why are you still following that? Why are you trying to be so holy? And we begin to doubt that we even have to live that way. Though the word is clear. That is a six-part series. There's no doubt, right? I could say so much more about all of those. And enough to say, because in this message we can't go any deeper than that into each of those, but all that to say the Bible addresses all of it with grace and truth. And we can bring our questions, our genuine inquiry to the Word of God, and it will answer them. And we must. Because I wonder how many children and youth who were raised here, even in our own church over the last 16 years, who lose what faith they had because their doubts were not addressed. They lost confidence in the Word of God because it seemed to them like it offered no answers. I wonder how many wander off their mustard seed-sized faith having died at the hands of unanswered questions and unaddressed doubts. All of that to say, ask your questions, get the answers you need so that the doubts you have about Jesus and the Christian life will be quieted. All right, ready for the last one? See also that you need persistent, not perfect faith. 
persistent, persistent, this is good news, persistent, not perfect faith. There's not a person in the room who has perfect faith. Doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus and how close your walk has been to Him, your faith is not perfect. And it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be persistent. And it's essential that we not see this whole discussion that we're having as being an either-or proposition. For example, it's not that I am so completely a doubter and have completely rejected faith or that I am perfect in my faith and got it all locked down and I never doubt anything. It's not those two extremes. I think it's actually impossible to live fully in those two extremes. We're, we're somewhere between them on a spectrum. And I actually want to talk about that in a few moments. But let's look first at John uh, 20. I know some of you are there. I heard your pages turning. John 20, 24 through 29. Now in this scene, the disciples are gathered for a second time. The first time they were gathered and Jesus appeared uh, to most of them. But for some reason, uh, Thomas was not there among them. And what we're going to read is the second uh, time that they're together and Jesus appears to them. Uh, take a look, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Where do you suppose he was? Getting pizza, something like that. He's out getting food. He's out getting food. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, he comes back, he's got the pizza with them, we have seen the Lord. How do you think Thomas feels about this? I mean, critical, processing, thinking man Thomas, the guy who's got to see it to believe it guy, he's going to analyze all the data. The problem right now is he doesn't have the data. He's only got people telling him close friends, but he's got people telling him that they saw him. Not impressive to a guy like Thomas. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, check this out, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, remember where the sword went through, I will never believe, he said. right? How firm. This is why he's doubting Thomas, right? This is the moment where he gets this label because he's so firm in his conviction. But keep in mind, he gets a, he gets a bad rap here. He's still in the room. He's still with the other disciples. There's still a sense in him that this is real that they're waiting for something, that the truth is going to be exposed. He hasn't bolted. He hasn't headed back to his hometown. He hasn't returned to his old job. He's still there. He hasn't allowed his doubts to drive him far away. He hasn't abandoned his fledgling faith. He hasn't checked out. He's still there. This is a challenge that so many people face, and I've seen this so often because they get in the midst of whatever the, the thing is that's driving their doubt, whatever the root of doubt is in their mind, but it starts to happen to them. They start to question God, and they start to move in the wrong direction, more toward doubt than faith. And, and, and in the midst of it, what they do is they, they start to check out of their relationships here. Now, they don't go to small group as often, and then they fall off altogether, and, and then they don't show up for their 
time serving in Harvest Kids or in the parking lot and, and, and they're not serving and then they make a call and they tell the leader, well, you know what, I'm just not going to serve right now. I'm just in a season of my life and it's not working out for me. So now they're not in a small group and they're not serving anywhere and then their attendance on weekend worship just starts to get a little spotty and it's not as regular and they're staying home more often than not and then they fall off altogether and stay in the room in the midst of their doubts, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the questioning. Thomas stayed in the room. Well, he makes this bold pronouncement, and you would think that the Lord might let him off the hook, but verse 26 says, eight days later. Fine, Thomas. You're going to be like that? I'm going to make you wait more than a week, and then I'm going I'm to show you. His disciples were inside again, verse 26, and Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he walked over to Thomas. And he said to him, Put your fingers here. Put your hand here. Feel my wounds and see them. Such an awesome moment. Jesus said to him, see it, you see what he says in, at the end of verse 27? Don't disbelieve. Don't doubt. Don't be skeptical about it. But believe. Move towards faith, Thomas. And Thomas answered him. The boldest confession in the New Testament. My Lord and my God. Thomas got it. His persistent faith being in the room and, and pursuing it had resulted in this moment in which he sees the Lord. Truth and grace coming together in this moment. It, this is the very character of Christ. He delivers the truth about the resurrection. He brings Thomas to that place, but he does it with such grace and mercy toward him. He doesn't castigate him for his unbelief and doubt, but he indulges his need to know and to come to it on his own, to see and to confirm the truth. Now, if Jesus was like that with Thomas, do you think he's going to be any less gracious, any less gentle, any less kind? to you in your doubts and perhaps even more so than he was with Thomas. He made him wait eight days after all. You see, Jesus says this, then in verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Just fine. But then he speaks to us. He speaks down through the ages and he says, blessed are those who have believed and yet have not seen. That's every person in this room who has believed in Jesus and followed him, though you've not seen him. You and I have to believe. Not because we got to see Jesus resurrected. Not because we got to put our fingers in the wounds. Not because we got to put our hand in the side. We have to believe Jesus because Thomas did. 
And we don't even have the advantage, in fact, of knowing Thomas personally, at least having firsthand witness. Okay, we weren't in the room, but we knew Thomas, and he told us, and we trust. We don't even have that. What we have is Thomas and Jesus talked, and God had worked out, and John saw the whole thing happening, and the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the gospel, and for 2,000 years we've had the testimony of that, and we believe on the basis of that. And Jesus said, because of that, you're blessed in a very special way. All right, so let's come back to this idea of a spectrum. Because this is where it's going to get real for us. Doubt and faith, I said, exist on a spectrum. It's a line moving in both directions. You and I are somewhere on the spectrum. We're between the two of them. You can decide where exactly you fit there. J.C. Ryle said this, Doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. In other words, wherever you are on the spectrum, even if it's past half and tilting toward doubt, God's willing to help you and to move you along toward greater faith. And I don't need to necessarily tell you this, but the more doubts you have, the more doubts you have, the more it's kind of about you and you're doing it your own way, then, of course, the more weight you're going to be carrying around. And the less that it's about you and your way of doing it, the more of God that you have, then the less weight you're going to have, you're going to be able to shed that because you're moving toward faith and trusting in Him. And, and, and then the byproduct of moving more and more toward doubt is that eventually you fall into despair and your life is empty and it's meaningless. You have no hope for the future. But the closer you move toward faith, the thing that God provides for you is peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, and he provides for you a hope that transcends this life and goes on into eternity. Where are you on the spectrum? We can't allow our doubts to overtake our faith, but instead be moving with this persistent faith, always moving toward a greater faith in him, just as Thomas did. In chapter 11, he said, let's go die with him. In chapter 14, he found out that in looking at Jesus, he was looking at God. In chapter 20, he made the declaration, the confession of faith, my Lord and my God. In each instance, he was moving further from doubt and closer to faith and receiving the benefits of all of that. So where are you on the spectrum? And more importantly, what direction are you headed? Let's pray. Father, I, I pray now for any and all uh, in this room who are battling a doubt in some way. Perhaps um, some who are not yet believers who need to see you in this moment and believe and turn their life over to follow Christ. But the likelihood is that there are many believers in this room who are already facing one of those roots of doubt and they're carrying that around as a weight on their shoulder. And God, I pray that you would 
quiet that doubt in their lives by your Holy Spirit and that in this very moment as decisions are made that you would give them hope and peace. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.